Welcome back, everybody, to the Say the Damn Score podcast. Logan Anderson here bringing you today's podcast as always. Today, we're joined by a very special guest. He is the voice of the Division I Montana State Bobcats for both football and basketball, an up-and-comer in the industry. Jay Sanderson, how are you doing today? I'm good. You're good. How are you? Any better, and I would be you. (laughs) I don't know about that. That's my bad joke that I use way too often. But starting off the podcast, everybody that I have on, I ask, what was their foot in the door into the industry? You usually go to broadcasting school and you need a break or you need to know somebody just to get that very first job to start climbing the ladder. What was yours? Well, mine was kind of uh, self-made in some regard. When I was in high school, I had had interest in being a sports broadcaster and so did a friend of mine. A guy named Matt Rhodes. I grew up in a little town called Douglas, Kansas, uh, a little bit southeast of Wichita. And while we were there, we joked around that we were going to start our own TV show and just kind of do it ourselves. Well, that summer, that was during my sophomore year of high school. At the end of that year, my uh, going into my junior year, the summer between my sophomore and junior year, uh, we found out about a uh, week-long summer sportscasters academy hosted by Mitch Holtis, the voice of the Kansas City Chiefs. And it was at Kansas State in Manhattan, so he and I went to that week-long camp, had a great time, learned a ton, and then we went back to Douglas. And we spent the entire first semester of the school year trying to figure out what we were going to do, how we were going to try to get into the business, do something different and unique for high school kids. And so we decided that because our little town that we grew up in, about 1,400 people, they had their own channel on the uh, cable system, the cable access channel for the city. And so he and I put together a proposal for the city council, went to their meeting, asked if we could have an hour of time each week. And we didn't think there was any way they would let us do it. And to our surprise, they voted yes. They would give these two high school kids who had no business having an hour on a TV channel an hour on a TV channel. And so... We left the meeting and we said, okay, when do we want to start? How are we going to do this? And our brain just started swirling. Well, the next day, the high school principal found out what had happened. He called us into his office and said, well, we're going to buy all of your equipment for you. We're going to hire someone to teach the class, and we're going to make it a class. And so all of a sudden, all of a sudden, we had a TV show and a place to do it in a classroom environment where we were getting credit at the high school for it. So we did that starting the second semester of the school year. So we did our own TV show in high school for a year and a half. Then I graduated from high school, went to the University of Kansas, and I thought I was going to be a TV guy. That's really what I pursued. I did some radio also while I was at KU and uh, kind of fell in love with the play-by-play side of things there because I didn't have that outlet in high school. We just did TV stuff. We we thought we were going to be the next Keith Olbermann and Dan Patrick you know, be the big next sports center anchors. So I go to KU, fall in love with radio. I do a little bit of radio and TV both. During my, uh, the summer after my sophomore year of college, going into my junior year, my dad was diagnosed with brain cancer. And so that prompted me to move home back to Wichita. So I moved back to Wichita, graduated from Wichita State. But while I was a student at Wichita State, I got an internship at the CBS station in Wichita. And I lived at that place. I did volunteer stuff. They didn't pay me. I only got two semesters of credit, but I worked there for three years as a, quote, intern. And then right before the start of my last semester of college at Wichita State, they added another newscast. They added a 9 p.m. newscast, and they needed someone to report an anchor for that. And so they hired me to be on the air there. And so I got a professional job before I was even done with school. And that was a huge break. Um, Then through some other circumstances, I got out of that business. I actually taught journalism at a high school for three years. And then after I got tired of that, went back into the radio business in a small town in northwest Kansas, in Goodland, Kansas, and kind of started working my way up from there. So um, sometimes you got to make your own breaks. I feel like I'm somebody who did that in some regard. I had a lot of help along the way. Uh, So it was a pretty even mix of making your own breaks and getting a little bit of luck. When you were in front of that city council, 
Was it a unanimous vote, or were there people that went against it? Did it have kind of the Chuck Norris in dodgeball climactic <laughs> finish to it? It was a 5 nothing vote. It was unanimous. Well, that's good. And the other thing that you touched on that I wanted to go back to was you said that your first kind of education in sportscasting was at the Mitch Holtis broadcasting camp in Kansas City or in Manhattan. What do you remember that you still use from that camp? Uh, lots of things. In fact, I uh, over the years, I when I come across somebody and really admire their work, I'll ask to see a copy of their spotting board. And so I've got a, I've got a notebook upstairs. It's like a four-inch binder in my office that has uh, got spotting boards and just different notes and different ways other people prep uh, over the years. And Mitch's stuff is still as good as I've ever seen. And so I, I, a lot of my job or my on-air performance and on, a lot of my preparation is stolen from what Mitch does. And that's the one thing that I took from him was do whatever it takes to be great at this. And something that I really got from him was watch film. He watches as much film as a coach does in preparation for a Chiefs game. And I try to do the same thing. I watch a lot of film. I read a lot. I do try to go after my broadcast as if I'm a coach in some regard, in that I want to know everything about every player on that field because I feel that's my responsibility. You know, particularly for my job now at Montana State, there are a lot of kids on the team from Montana, a lot of kids from small towns, a lot of kids who have family listening to the radio broadcast. And if that kid gets in the game, I want to be able to say something about that kid that's going to make that family proud. And so that's kind of what I, how I approach my prep, is that I want to know as many details about every kid on both teams as possible because you never know when you might use it. Okay, we'll get back into that a little bit later in the podcast. But just before we go further... Just give us the Cliff Notes version of your path to where you are now. We talked about how you got in, but I know you made stops in New Mexico, I believe Iowa, and mm -hmm. back to Kansas before you ended up where you are. Right. So I, as I mentioned, started at the CBS station in Wichita, my hometown. Got out of that. I taught journalism for three years at a high school in Hutchinson, Kansas. Then, after I, as I mentioned earlier, was ready to go back into the broadcasting business. I went to a small town in northwest Kansas called Goodland. It's about two and a half hours from Denver. It's right on Interstate 70. And uh, it's about 3,500, 4,000 people. Small town, uh, big enough to be able to have some good stuff on the air. I was there for not quite two years. Then I went to Ottumwa, Iowa, which is about 30,000 people, give or take. I was there for six months. I was there long enough for a summer and a football season. And then um, kind of had a falling out with the boss there. We just did not see eye to eye, personality conflict, and many other things. And so it was time for me to leave there. I actually found a job back home in Wichita at an all sports station where I did play by play and I did the afternoon drive sports talk show. Uh, and out of that job, I was there for nine months. And then the New Mexico State job opens, uh, Division One school. And that was kind of a strange process how that all came to be that job opened at a division one school in the middle of september so they were looking to hire somebody in a hurry and i didn't expect you know much to come of it but i threw my hat in the ring and got the job and so i was there uh for two years and then the montana state job opened up while i was at new mexico state i did women's sports i did volleyball women's basketball softball did some baseball did the tv show uh the weekly tv coach show uh there and then the montana state job opened up to do football and men's hoops one of the things you touched on in that was about getting into teaching journalism. Do you need, did you need to get any kind of teaching education to get that, or were you just using experience? What qualifications do you have to have to do that? Well, Kansas at that time had a kind of a unique program called a visiting scholar program for educators. And because I had banked enough time in the business to that point, uh, I was able to get in on that um, that license. But once I got in on that, then I had to start working on getting a full certification as a teacher. And so I had to take some grad courses at a university in education and kind of work my way through that before I got my full license. So it, it was a little bit of both. Did you ever get your full license? I did. 
ever any tempt any ever any temptation to use it at all since then no i'm now that i'm back in the business i'm very very happy to be back in broadcasting and doing play-by-play is my calling and it's definitely what i want to do for the rest of my career so one of the things that that i kind of can relate to about some of the places you've been is Bozeman, and I believe it's Las Cruces. I might be butchering the mm-hmm. pronunciation. I'm not. Nope, a t- that's right. They're pretty isolated places. There's not a whole lot else around them. And I know that. I mean, you ditched our golf party in uh in North Carolina to go with West Durham. So you're obviously well networked in the business. How do you do networking so well, being isolated? Uh, honestly, the bulk of my networking comes when I go to Salisbury, North Carolina every summer for the NSMA convention, the uh, Hall of Fame weekend. I go there and just, I'm not out to get anything other than just meet people and just be a guy. You know, the beer's free, which is a huge plus. (laughs) So I enjoy that aspect of it. And I, for me, it's a social experience. And networking, to me, is just being a guy and just getting to know people. You know, yeah, we can talk shop, but I'd rather get to know somebody as a person while we're there because everybody else is there talking shop. You know, there'll be 7,000 guys trying to be seen or heard or get somewhere with somebody. And I think when you have so many people like that that are trying to gain just for themselves professionally in an environment like that, if you go into it thinking, I don't want to be that guy. I just want to go and hang out, have a good time, have a few laughs, and meet people and get to know them as a person rather than say, oh, my gosh, there's the voice of whoever, I think you stand out. I think that makes you different from a lot of other people. And that's, and it's never been anything that I've consciously tried to do. I don't go into it thinking, boy, I'm going to be different. I'm, I just go into it thinking, hey, I just want to get to know people. That's how I met you. you know. And you and I talk more about other things when you and I first met versus talking about radio. We talked about everything else. We talked about the Chiefs and the Royals and, you know, your buddy John Thayer, how he's a big Royals and Chiefs fan also. we That's how I would rather get to know people, and that's how I network. And then the other part of it comes with it. And I think that served me well in some regard because I don't make it about, hey, how are you going to help me? It's, hey, let's get to know each other, and then maybe things will progress from there. Do you feel like it puts people's guard up right away when it becomes about how are you going to help me? Absolutely. Absolutely, because at a certain point, you just want to push away. You don't. It, it's, it's almost. I, I liken it in some regard to somebody like Tom Hanks. He walks down the street, and every single person knows who he is. And ten thousand people run up and say, "Hey, can I have an autograph? Hey, can I have a picture?" When in fact, he just wants to be Tom Hanks, and he just wants to go get some milk from the grocery store. And if you just let a guy be a guy. I think people will respect you a lot more. And to me, that's what I try to do. I just want people to be people. And that's I just want to be a guy. And that's all I want you to be with me. And so I would much rather just have a casual conversation, get to know you on a personal level, and then maybe we can talk about the business later after that. The next thing I wanted to ask is one of the times when we were chatting in Salisbury, you told the story of how you almost left the business of sportscasting and Getting to know you a little bit, you, you can tell that you're very, very passionate about it, and I imagine things would have to be pretty rough for you to even consider that. What was going through your head, and what happened at that time in your life? Well, it was while I was in Wichita, and it was probably the worst employer I've ever worked for in my life. And it was a situation where nobody, that nothing that anybody ever did was ever good enough. And we were talked to typically would have the F word mixed in and SOB and called dumb and just denigrated on a daily basis. And I worked a lot of hours. I went above and beyond the call of duty. I was the operations manager uh, at that station in addition to my play-by-play and sports talk duties. And it got to the point where I had somebody over at my house for dinner one night. It was... um, just it was a, it was a, it was a family situation. It was something that I needed to push away. Well, there, apparently there was an issue at the station, and the boss starts ringing my phone, and I didn't answer it because I'm sitting down at the table with my family and guests for dinner. 
And it just kept ringing and ringing and ringing, and I didn't answer it. Then it rang again, and I didn't answer it, and it rang again. And finally, I excused myself, went back to uh, the bedroom, and answered the phone. And I said, hello? And all of a sudden, I get it. You stupid F, you better answer my effing call when I dial your number. And I was like, wow, okay. And I said, well, I'm in the middle of something. What's going on? Station's off the air. And I said, okay, well, where's the engineer? I can't effing get a hold of him, so you have to be the person to go and fix it. Okay? And I said, well, I'm in the middle of a dinner, and I have guests over. He said, I don't care if you have the effing Pope at your house. You're coming to the station, or you can find a new job. And I said, okay. So I hung up, and as I was driving to the station, I kept thinking to myself, maybe I should get a new job. Then the next morning, I am filling in, so the morning show guy was on vacation. So I am doing... In addition to my operation manager's duties for this given week, I'm doing the morning show from 6 to 9 a.m., my normal operation manager duties. Then I do my afternoon show from 4 to 6. So five hours on the air, getting to the station early, not going on a lot of sleep, and trying to have a family. And the engineer had gotten fired the day before, unbeknownst to me. And so... As the operations manager, they start keeping more and more and more on my shoulders. Well, I am getting ready to go on the air for the morning show on a given day, and um, we have a technical issue. Something in the studio doesn't work. I don't remember exactly what it was. And so I just, I, I just lost it, had a meltdown, and <laughs> called the owner, and it was like quarter till six, and, of course, he another tirade of F-bombs about uh, why are you calling me this time of day? And I said, well, we don't have an engineer. I'd like to know what you want me to do. And he hung up on me. And that was the end. I was so angry. I, uh, there was a trash can. I'll never forget. There was a trash can sitting by the door to the studio. And it would have been good from 50 yards because it got punted pretty good. <laughs> and, um, so that I took the rest of the day off. I said, I don't feel well. I'm going home. When in all actuality, I went down to Wichita State and looked about uh, what I needed to do to finish my degree in education to go teach from then on, to just be a teacher and get out of broadcasting altogether. Well, fortunately, six days later was when the New Mexico State job, uh, when New Mexico State hired me. They uh, opened, it up, opened up that job that Friday, and then uh, the following week they hired me. So it was a really, really bad situation, and it turned into a positive. Where is the line as far as what you're willing to take and how much work you have to you're willing to put in because to do what we do well it takes a lot of work and it takes a lot of work outside of normal work hours obviously your situation is above and beyond that where do you draw that line um i am not a time oriented person generally i'm a task oriented person i'll work until the job is done um so whatever it takes to be good at what I'm doing, I'm going to do. Now, as you progress and mature in the business, you find ways to work more efficiently, and you you know you learn little shortcuts here and there that you don't sacrifice the quality of work, uh, but you may save a few minutes here and there. And so, uh, because I I don't have an office on campus here at Montana State, I work from home, and so it's really important to me that when my wife and the kids get home, you know, five thirty, six o'clock, somewhere in there that I make sure that I push away from the work. I, 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 it's really important to me to have balance between home life and work life. And so, to me, there, there's a very, blind, very distinct line of demarcation of when I'm going to stop. Now, if I'm not done with what I need to do, when everybody else goes to bed, I'm kind of a night owl and I don't sleep a ton. So, when they go to bed, I may go back up to my office and work some more, just to try to pound out a few more things. Uh, but... I, I don't know if there's a really good answer to your question for me uh, because I'll, I'll work until I'm, I'm done. However, yes, as far as what I will take, going back to the reference I was just talking about, as long as somebody is adult and professional to me, I'll, I'll go to the ends of the earth to help them. But once you start calling me names and once you start denigrating me personally, then there are going to be problems. And so uh, no one deserves the kind of treatment that we got when we worked at that station, and uh, that, that's kind of where I draw the line. If you're professional with me, I'll do just about anything for you. 
That's one of the things I'm trying to personally learn. I just got engaged not that long ago and and learning to balance uh, enough time to get all the prep work done and get and have a good healthy relationship has been something that's been difficult. How long did it take you to figure out that balance? Uh well, I didn't really find it until I had a couple of kids and then um you realize that your priorities change. When you're single, that's all you've got. I mean, you, you are a go-getter. You want to make a mark in the business. You want to advance and you want to do great things. But then when you have a wife and you have children and all of a sudden, you know, finding, you know, what somebody did three years ago in their third game of the season, while that might be a nugget that comes up at some point, is not quite as important as spending time with your kids. And I've said many, many times that when I die on my tombstone, I don't want it to say what a great sportscaster I was. I'd much rather say that I was a good father and a husband. And so though that that's how my life is prioritized. And, yes, I do commit a lot of time to my job. And it requires a lot of sacrifice from my family because what we do for a living, all the games are in the evening. And that's time generally when you would be home with your wife and kids. And so the, the, the demands of it are a little more rigorous than somebody who works an 8-5 to five job. But fortunately, my wife and my kids love what I do for a living. you know. And, and Montana State is kind enough to give them tickets to all the games that we play. So while I might be at work and not sitting there with them at a game, they're in the building, they're in the stadium, they're at the arena during those games. And so you know they'll run down at halftime and, you know, I get a hug from the kids or something like that. And so we try to find a way to make it a family affair. Uh, but there is definitely sacrifice required. And you've got to love it. You have to love it. And, um, for example, in the last two years here at Montana State, it, we're in the Big Sky Conference. It's a basketball league that doesn't get a ton of marquee home games. And so, as a result, you end up traveling a bunch. This uh, In 2014... Our non-conference basketball season included a 12-day road trip and an 11-day road trip in November and December. So I missed a big portion of the holiday season uh, at home with my family because I was on the road with basketball. Last year in 2015, same story. We had a 12-day road trip and a 9-day road trip. And the 12-day road trip, we left Bozeman on December December 12th, and I got back home on December 24th. And I actually didn't, I didn't fly back to Bozeman. I flew to Wichita to meet my wife with my kids to go to my family's house where I grew up. And so I, I missed big, important moments. I missed holiday programs with that, the kids' school, and I missed a lot of things like that. And so yeah, there are certain things you do sacrifice for this. And, it, you know, it, it, it's almost like for the wives, it's almost like being a coach's wife. You know, I give my wife a kiss on August 1st when fall football camp starts and say, I'll see you in April. I mean, it's. It's not quite that extreme, but it's pretty close. And so you have to have an understanding family. And then in the times when you are off, like during our bye week for football, I do my best to push away from it altogether. And I'll try to go do extra things with my kids, do extra things with my wife, go meet her for lunch sometime during the bye It's tough. It's very, very tough. You mentioned earlier that, you had developed some shortcuts to save time in the prep process. Are those some things, what are some things you can share that are able to help you be more efficient? One of the big things for me, because I only do football and basketball, I, I have once basketball ends in, you know, mid-March all the way through August when fall camp starts, I start working on football. I, when spring football gets going, I try to stay locked in and uh, I, I try to keep ahead of the process for prep. So what I'll do is once schedules start coming out, particularly for football, uh, because as you know, preparing for football is a lot more work-intensive than basketball. Um, So what I do, I have organized on my computer um, a tab for each school in our conference. And then for football, when the schedule comes out, I'll add a tab in my browser for the non-conference teams we'll play. And so in the off-season, once a week, I will go and check all the news sources for that school, and I will just copy the link to any story that I find, 
and I'll paste it into a Word document. And I'll do that all spring and try to stay up and keep. So I've got a pay. I've got a, a, a Word file on each team that will play. That's however many pages long, full of these links. And then once spring ball is over, I'll start going through each of them, and I get a legal pad for each school and make notes off of those newspaper articles that I find or blog articles or whatever. And I just keep a, no, a notepad of notes with every school that we're going to play. And, I, I mean, it's a process that I'll do once or twice a week during the entirety of the summer. And that way when fall camp gets here, I have a pretty good idea of what each team is about, what they've done in the spring. And then when fall camp begins, I do the same thing. I just kind of keep a running uh, list of notes that I have uh, been able to compile. I add to what I got in the spring when fall camp starts or anything that may have cropped up over the summer. And then I'll start um, right about the time media days happens in late July for football. I'll actually put together my initial spot boards for each team. And the little things that I put on my spot board that can take a lot of time, putting in the coaching staff, putting in coaches' records, where they went to school, season schedule, pertinent stats from last year, stuff, you know, team records. Uh, the last time something happened for that team, you know, like the last time they had a three-touchdown game or something, I put all that stuff on my notes in the summer. And I keep a uh, file on each team uh, so that I can, once it gets to game week, all those little things that take up time in your prep, it's already been done. And so I try to stay ahead of the game that way. That way when I do get into game week for each team, then it's just about what they've done on the field during the season. You know, I might find a feature article here or there that could give me a nice nugget about a player that I can get into, work into a broadcast if they can, were to catch a pass or something to that effect. And so just little things like that, being able to work more efficiently uh, over the summer really helps in the fall when football comes around. Since we're talking about preparation, take us through your prep process during a game week. Okay, well, Saturday, obviously game day. Sunday, now this is new for me this year. I have committed myself to not doing prep on Sundays. I've got to have a day to push away. It used to be I would just grind through it and work seven days a week all the time. And I, I think I think being able to push away is really important. And, it, and having done it this year, I'm so glad that I have. Because I can watch the Chiefs play on a Sunday. It's my favorite NFL team, and I can hang out with my kids, and they, some of our kids are Packers fans, and so we'll watch the Chiefs, we'll watch the Packers, we'll go for a walk, we'll just have some family time together, because it's something we don't get a ton of during football season, so Sunday, it's my day to push away and just kind of refresh, because my brain's been fried for the previous six days. Uh, Monday, in the morning, I will, uh, as I, because I've already gotten the shell of my spotting boards done, I'll go through and put in all the stats and pertinent figures that I need for that week's game. And then Monday is what I call reading day. And that's the day where I go through all those articles that I have compiled since the start of fall camp that I may not have gotten to. Uh, once the season starts, I continue that process of cutting and pasting the, the links to, to newspaper articles into that Word document, but I don't read them each week for every team. I just do them for the team that I'm preparing for in that, that week for that week's game. So, I do. I read all those articles on Monday, and I add it all to my notes. And then I'll tear the pages out of my notebook, and then I'll go through and start to assimilate those into a little more dialed-in portion of my personal game notes. And then I'll trans transfer the information on individuals onto my spot boards. And so the process kind of it's almost like a funnel. You have a lot of information at the start, and then you start to narrow it down to a few little things that you think will be able to work into the broadcast. And then uh, that's Monday. And then Tuesday, um, I spend preparing for our coaches show, which we do on Wednesdays. And so, all right, you know, I'll start to think about a few questions that we might or topics that we might like to get into on the coaches show, and I'll make some notes. Uh, Tuesday is also the day I generally start watching film on the opponent. And uh, I watch offense first because that's the, 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 where you get your most touches where you're going to have to identify more players. Uh, I try to get real familiar with what they do schematically, offensively, how each player likes to play, what their style of play is, how the teams use them, and so on. I watch at least the most previous game that they've played. 
I'll watch all their offense, and then I'll dive into their defense. And for the defense, I'm, I'm mostly looking to be able to identify numbers quickly. I do have a spotter for home games for sure and sometimes on the road, and so that helps with defense. But let's say somebody has an interception. I don't want to wait for the spotter to tell me who it is before I identify it. So I still go ahead and do my best to, to memorize all at least the 11 starters on defense. I don't go through the whole two deep, but I do memorize the first 11, and uh, so I do that with film, and I'll make a few notes on that. Uh, that's pretty well Tuesday. Uh, Tuesday afternoon, I'll finish up my uh, notes for the uh, coaches show. Wednesday is the day we do our coaches show. That's in the evening. Um, I will finalize my questions for that, print those out, get them ready to go for the show. I'll go set up the equipment at the venue where we do the show. Then I come home, and I do some work on our website also, uh, some video work, so I have some previews that I do, and uh, I'll write those. Uh, Wednesday, I also start working on pregame. I, uh, we do a segment called The Roundtable where me, our sideline reporter, and our analyst, we just sit down and kind of go through the game storylines, and I'll write, write out the talking points for that, uh, that we're going to go through on that. I write my script for the video preview, and then I, I actually, we uh, Thursdays we meet with the offensive and defensive coordinators. And so on Wednesdays, I'll go through and review my notes from film and put together a list of, you know, four or five questions for both offensive and defensive coordinators um, of things that I'm curious about as far as the game plan for that week's game. And then we meet with them on Thursday. We uh, do our roundtable. We record that on Thursday. Um, and then I dive into more film, more film, memorizing numbers. I try to get my boards all printed. I finalize my, my personal notes. I keep a, I like a storyline sheet. Is I just take a legal pad, divide it into two columns, one for Montana State, one for the opponent, and I'll have eight or ten little bullet points on there of little storylines I'm going to follow during the game. I develop those uh, as the week goes on, but I put them on my, my notepad in the, in the final form on Thursday. Friday, uh, if it's a home game, I use that as bonus time. Just to, I, I don't, I don't go too crazy at it on Friday. It's a day where I kind of give myself a brain break. Um, I do a little bit of work that I haven't completely finished. Uh, maybe for pregame, maybe a segment or two of pregame I haven't completed yet. Uh, but otherwise, I'll just kind of take it easy. I'll go and get in a nice workout. I try to make leave leave myself time for a workout every day, uh, just to have you know, an hour or an hour and a half where I can push away and go let my brain shut off. But maybe I'll go get a little longer workout on Friday if we're home. Um, I'll look at a little bit of film on Friday, uh, go over my notes, just kind of refresh and review. Friday afternoon I do the pregame interview with the head football coach uh, for home games. If it's a road game, obviously we travel that day for the trips we have to fly to. Uh, we charter. Montana State's fortunate enough to charter to our road games that we fly. Uh, so take a nice, easy pace out to the airport. You know, I'll do a little bit of that same stuff on the plane. When we get to the, the location where we're playing, we'll do the pregame interview with the coach in the hotel on Friday night. Um, and Fridays are usually not too crazy. It's just, like I say, a day to kind of decompress from uh, the grind of the week. Saturday game day, it just depends on what time we kick. I try to be at the stadium four hours before kickoff, uh, make sure the equipment's all set up, tested, and ready. Uh, I get there that early because if something were not to work, it gives us a little bit of time if we needed to go find a Radio Shack or a Best Buy or something we could um, if we needed a piece of equipment in a hurry. So it gives us an opportunity to make sure that everything's going to work. And then, you know, just kind of – I like being at an empty stadium. There's something kind of cool about it. There's an anticipation as the teams walk onto the field and as the fans start flowing into the stadium. I like being at the stadium early because you kind of get the entire game day experience. It's almost like being there for sunrise in some regard. And so I get there early, hang out. Usually there's a TV in our booth. Uh, we'll put that on, kind of have college game day on, or the early games, and we'll keep our eyes on those. And, uh, you know, as, as things get ready to go, I'll just start to get a little more dialed in, a little more serious, a little more focused, and then away we go. What do you do in the summer months? Since you mentioned that you don't cover baseball, you don't do anything there. I know you work for Learfield, and I don't want—I I don't want you to go into any, any monetary specifics. But how do you make a living in the summer months? Well, I fortunately, 
uh, my wife has a really good job and she makes good money and she's a teacher, so she's home in the summer. Clearfield pays me enough, and I, through my the work that I do for Montana State on the website, they pay me a little bit also. Uh, it's enough to allow me to not have to do anything in the summer. So I coach a baseball team. In the summer, I coach one of my son's baseball teams. Uh, it's a competitive team that we travel around the state of Montana. And a couple years ago, we won the state title, so we went to regionals in Portland. So I coach that group and spend a lot of time with my wife and kids. And that's really important to me to be able to do that because I do work so hard. Once basketball is over, you know, they still have school until end of May, early June. And that's when I can kind of stay up to date on spring football and all that. But once the school year is over, I try not to do a whole lot of work. I try to stay away from it as best I can. There'll be little things here and there that pop up. Um, I do help out with the university's uh, fundraising group, the Bobcat Club. I go on their uh, spring and summer tour with them, speaking engagements and meeting fans, and we travel all over the state of Montana, a couple thousand miles on the car uh, that they supply to us. And so I'll go around and meet folks and do a lot of that sort of stuff. But otherwise, it's pretty low-key in the summer. It's, it's really nice to be able to push away. I know you feel strongly about designing spotting boards and writing everything in by hand, if I remember correctly. What's your thought on that? Well, I used to do it all by hand, and I thought I would do it that way forever. Uh, but in the effort to, again, as I mentioned earlier, work more efficiently, I have abandoned that way of doing it. I uh, do it all on a computer. I've designed an Excel spreadsheet that I use for both football and for basketball. And the, the reason I did that was because I see the same team every week. I see Montana State every week, and I don't want to have to redesign and rewrite an entire new spot board every single week. And so it was just much more time efficient to put it all into a spreadsheet. And then additionally, if, if, there's an, if I make a mistake or if, let's say, somebody gets hurt at the last minute, it's much easier to make that change on something that's digital versus handwritten. All you got to do is pre, pre, uh, reprint it if something changes, whereas if, um, you're handwritten, you may have to redo the whole thing, and that's certainly not ideal. Uh, so I, a few years ago, when I got to, uh, after my first year at uh, New Mexico State, is when I kind of went to doing things um, uh, digitally. Mentioning New Mexico State, you went there to do women's basketball, but in the process, you also picked up volleyball, and if I remember correctly, had never done volleyball before. How did you learn to do a new sport, and how long did it take you to feel confident about the job you were doing? Well, I, when I got to New Mexico State, I had done one volleyball match on the radio in my entire life, and it had been a couple of years since I had done it at the time I took that job. And I'm not suggesting everybody necessarily do this, but when they interviewed me for that job, I just straight up lied through my teeth about my ability to call volleyball, because when the job opened, that was their most immediate need. Um, the job opened like September 10th, something in that range. The volleyball season had already started, and the guy who had done it was getting out of the business, and he was taking another job. And so they needed somebody immediately that could come and call a volleyball match. And so I applied, they called me, and one of the early questions in the interview process was, have you ever played? Have you ever have you ever uh, called volleyball? And I was like, oh sure, you bet. And I told him about the one match that I called. I didn't say it was the only match I'd ever done. Fortunately for me, my wife was an elite volleyball player. She played collegiately. Both of her sisters played Division One volleyball. My wife was a junior Olympian. Uh, her, my father-in-law is something like the third winningest high school volleyball coach in Kansas high school history. Um, and so I really played that up, and they bought it. And so. They gave me the job, and so they said, great, can you be here in one week to call volleyball on television? And I was like, oh, my goodness. Yes, I can do it. I didn't even hesitate. Just, yep, yep, I'll be there. So I hang up the phone. I tell my wife, I said, hey, I got the New Mexico State job. She's like, wow, great. I got to be there in a week. Oh, my. And then I said, I need you to tell me everything you have ever known about volleyball right now. <laughs> and so I got a crash course on volleyball. Uh, fortunately, my sister-in-law was an assistant coach at the University of Houston at the time, and so I called and talked with her as well about 
you know, the, the college game and how it's different from high school and all this and that. So I go to New Mexico State, and my first match is on TV. And I just tell myself, keep it as simple as possible. Fortunately, the analyst that they had for me was a coach. He's a guy who had been a high school coach. And he was really, really, really good as an analyst. And so I just gave the absolute bare bones, absolute minimum, and let him do all the talking. And I took notes after note after note after note during that game, during that broadcast, and uh, slowly but surely, it took me a couple of weeks, it took me about two weeks to really get 100% up to speed doing it. And once I got there and they saw the first broadcast, I think they figured out that I'd kind of bluffed them in the interview, but they'd already got, had me there. And uh, it turned out to be a good thing because I was like, you know, like wet clay. They could mold me however they wanted me, and that's what they did. What are the keys to doing volleyball well? I've seen that in some discussion forums, and I think it's a sport that is getting broadcast on the radio and on TV more frequently. But I've tried it before. I've done it probably 10 or 12 times, and it's really, really difficult. It's really fast-moving. What do you focus on to make sure you do a good job? Don't get bogged down by calling every touch of the ball. I think if you try to do that, you'll kill yourself. That's really, really a difficult thing to do. Um, I think it's important just to get, get the high points. Really, don't let the listeners miss out on the most important thing. Uh, you know, like who has the kill, who's on serve, a good back row play. If you establish every once in a while who the setter is in a given rotation, I, I think you can just say the ball is set to the pin to whoever. And I, I, I think you can leave out that middle touch. You can leave out the set unless it's a bad set. And so I, I, I think the, the real trick to it is knowing what not to say. And I, I think that, that really will help somebody who's never called volleyball before uh, kind of get to get comfortable. Because, again, you don't want to sound like, I know this will date me, uh, you don't want to sound like a micro-machines man uh, from those commercials in the 80s where you're talking, you know, at 200 words a minute. If you just kind of keep a nice conversational pace, volleyball does have a nice cadence to it. It has a, a steady pace. Serve, pass, set, swing. Pass, dig, pass, set, swing. And there, there becomes a certain pace to it. And if you follow a team enough, you figure out their pace all the time. And then it becomes easier once you learn that pace. What are some broadcast horror stories that you have? We talked about your time in Wichita, but... When I say horror stories, I mean really inconvenient broadcast locations, uh, buses breaking down in the middle of nowhere, just something weird or unusual that has happened along the way during your career. Um, only one really comes to mind, and it was actually my very first broadcast here at Montana State. Um, we play football at Arkansas State. It wasn't even a home game. We had to go on the road. And so that, my first year, we did not have an engineer that traveled with us for football. We had an engineer for home games, but not for road games. And so it's a brand-new equipment setup. I mean, it's very intricate. We've got a six-channel mixer, and all six channels are being used. And, I mean, it's very elaborate. And so we have no engineer. So I am certainly nervous about that. So we get there. We, go, we get to the stadium plenty early. We set up the equipment. And then for some reason, we cannot connect to the station. Through the, the, At the stadium at Arkansas State, we were only able to use a POTS line. Fortunately, we have, had a nice Comrex unit that would equalize the POTS line, so it sounded like you were in the studio and not like over a phone line. But at any rate, we couldn't get connected. And we tried, and we tried, and we tried. So much so, we get to the start of the broadcast, and we are still not connected. Fortunately, the way I prefer to do pregame for football as much of it is pre-recorded, and so we don't have to go live until the third segment of pregame. So it gives about 18 minutes, and we're trying to figure this out, and we're working through it. Unfortunately, Learfield has a very, very, very good engineering department, and so they were trying to figure it out between us and the flagship of the uh, network, and we couldn't figure it out. And so the, the problem was. I could not dial out to the radio station. Or I, I could dial the phone number out, but the radio station could not dial to me. And that was a real problem. So Learfield gave me an 800 number to call from my POTS unit. I called them, and it was fine. But again, for some reason, the radio station could not dial to me. 
So somehow the the the, the whiz engineers at Learfield, um, I dialed their eight hundred number, and somehow they patched it into the to the flagship station, and we got on the air. Uh, but we did not get on the air connected from the stadium for my first ever Division One football broadcast until about forty five minutes to kick, and the pregame show was already on the air. <laughs> and uh, what it ended up being is that they had gotten a new phone line, new POTS line at the radio station, and they forgot to uh, configure it to where they could dial long distance on it. <laughs> and so that, it, I mean, it was something very, very minor, and it's something that's easy to overlook. And it was a real lesson in learning about uh, making sure all the T's are crossed and lowercase J's are dotted because it, it was a very much a, harrowing situation for my very first broadcast working for Learfield and for Montana State. What was the reaction from Learfield and from uh, the people at your at Montana State once that happened? Were you worried at all afterwards? No, no, no one was worried. I mean, we got on the air. To, to the listeners, nobody knew the difference because we had the first few segments uh, pre-recorded. So it, it was not a big deal. It, everything went off fine. So nobody knew any differently. Um, it was just one of those little small things that from time to time crop up, and it just happened to be on my very first game here. Who are your favorite broadcasters to listen to, both on a national level and maybe some under-the-radar regional people or just friends in the industry who people might not know about at this point? Um, regionally, I was very fortunate to grow up listening to the Kansas City Chiefs, and when I was in my early youth, up until about 1994, I think, the voice of the Chiefs was Kevin Harlan, who is, to me, the gold standard in play-by-play right now, uh, nationally. Um, and Mitch Holtis, obviously, as I mentioned earlier, he's been the voice of the Chiefs since then, since the uh, mid-'90s, and he still is, and he's terrific. And uh, you can certainly, if you listen to me, you can hear a lot of influence from Mitch on my call uh, of a football game. Uh, Baseball-wise, Denny Matthews, He's in the Baseball Hall of Fame. Not a lot of people know him uh, because it's the Royals and they're not a sexy brand nationally. Uh, but he's as good as they come. He's not an excitable guy. He's very by the book. and um, Like he's not a screamer or a yeller. He doesn't get too fired up one way or the other. Uh, but he's as good as it gets. He's very funny. He's witty. He knows baseball. And he's just got a nice, comfortable pace to him. Um, I'm calling the Royals. Nationally, I really, really like Dan Schulman. I think he's great uh, on Major League Baseball and ESPN. He's also really good on their college basketball stuff. Kevin Harlan's great, both on radio and TV. Uh, if, if, you re- if you really want to learn something about how to do play-by-play, listen to Kevin Harlan. He is as good as it gets. Description, inflection, uh, preparation, you name it. He checks off every box of what a play-by-play man should be. And uh, so, to me, there is no close second to Kevin Harlan in the terms of national play-by-play. What do you do to get better at your craft? As much as I hate doing it, I listen to my stuff. I listen to every broadcast. And uh, generally, what I'll do, uh, so I'm not just sitting there staring at my computer, I will uh, put it on my phone, the uh, MP3 file on my phone, and I'll uh, listen to it while I'm at the gym. And everybody on their phone now has that. If you have an iPhone, you've got that little app. It's called Notes. And as I'm listening, in between sets or whatever I'm doing at the gym, I'll, you know, type in notes to myself about what I liked, what I didn't like, what I needed to do to get better, maybe try this, maybe try that. And uh, usually it takes me two workouts, two days of the gym to get through a football game. And so um, I'll listen to it on Monday, of Tuesday, Monday and Tuesday of each week and then uh, go back and put all my notes. I keep a little – it's not like, like a journal almost. I keep a notebook of notes for each week's game. And so I can look back three or four weeks or further back if I want and say, okay, what common things am I griping about my own call? What have I said I want to get better at each week? And then I try to use that. And I'll, each week I take an index card with me in the booth with two or three or four little things that I want to work on for each game and try to apply those to that week's broadcast. And so pick one or two or three things that you can do each week and try to get better at that. And then over time, I think you'll find satisfaction in your improvement. As a pretty talented Division One announcer, what are the things that at this point you're still working on? 
Well, everybody can always be better at time and score. I think that's that's just number one. Uh, recap, trying to recap often enough because you can't assume that listeners are sitting there staring at their radio for the whole broadcast. I try to make sure that I'm letting them know what's going on every, you know, 10 or so minutes more frequently if possible. Um, those are the big ones. And then just pacing and, you know, making sure that you are fair to the story, getting in the good good storylines that you want. And something that you, you and I both know, John Chalese really well, the SPAA uh, CEO, and he, he's a big advocate of making every broadcast as if it were a movie, plot development, character development, things like that. And that's something that I've really taken to heart is trying to make every game a story. It might be 45 to nothing in the second half, but I relish those kinds of games because that's when I can really show how hard I've prepped. And if you can make a 45 nothing game interesting through the use of good storylines and through the use of telling you know, good stories about players, character development, and continuing to expand on the plot line, not just of that game, but how it fits into the season as a whole, then I think you, st- you, you still are able to have a good broadcast, even though the game is a dog. Once again, we are talking with Jay Sanderson. He is the voice of the Montana State Bobcats. And Jay, if someone wanted to get a hold of you or ask you a question, how would they do so? Uh, you can email me. It's just my name, Jay Sanderson, and then AMFM, like a radio, Jay Sanderson, AMFM, at gmail.com. Uh, you can also find me on Twitter, at MSU Bobcats Voice. Those are probably the two easiest ways to uh, get in touch with me. All right, Jay, thanks a lot for joining us. I really appreciate your time taking you taking the time to join us on the podcast. Very happy to do it. This has been the Say the Damn Score podcast. Thanks for tuning in today. Remember to subscribe on iTunes or on Stitcher. You can also sign up for email updates. You can also sign up for email updates by going to saythedamnscore.com and clicking on the subscribe tab on the upper right side of the of the webpage. You can follow me on Twitter and get updates and ask any questions you might have by following Radio underscore Logan. And you can also follow the podcast on Facebook at facebook.com slash say the damn score. So thanks again for listening to the Say the Damn Score podcast. And remember, next time you're on the next time you're on the air, say the damn score a little bit more.